Uh, we, uh, this morning, are going to continue in this series uh, called uh, uh, Unpacking Forgiveness and looking at this uh, subject that is, for some people, quite difficult. Uh, one of the uh, norms of our day that seems to be a new norm is anger. Uh, anger is, according to a recent study, uh, a poll of 3,000 Americans by Esquire magazine, anger is on the rise. There are different sources of this anger, and uh, they uh, uh, look at those sources, 68% say they hear or read something in the news every day that makes them angry. So they are being daily fed by angry news. 54% of people say they are worse off financially than they thought they would be when they were younger, and the result of that is anger. Uh, people, uh, when asked what they are most angry about, violence, very specifically school shootings, uh, the preponderance of them makes people angry. Anger isn't new. Uh, it is not a new phenomenon. All you have to do is go from the uh, uh, Adam and Eve to the very next generation down. And one of their boys killed another of their boys. So uh, lest we think that the reality of anger is a new phenomenon, uh, Scripture sadly begins the unraveling of the uh, first family with anger that uh, was rampant between two of their sons. Paul addresses it here much later in Ephesians, and we then 2,000 plus years removed look at what Paul has to say. And so this morning, I want to say to you that if you are going to deal with forgiving someone, uh, you must first deal with your anger. You cannot in anger simultaneously forgive. Uh, that uh, will not uh, work. And so let's look at it. Uh, principle number one, renounce all ungodly anger. Paul here presents an anatomy of anger. Uh, if you want to uh, counsel through your own anger, this list is very effective in Paul's work. Uh, we see it go from the inner, unseen attitude to the outward expression right here in these verses. Uh, anger is like a volcano. It begins to burn from within. It will seethe for minutes or days or hours or even years, but ultimately there will be an eruption of that anger. Recently, I sat with uh, William Keller. Uh, we had lunch about four weeks ago, and as we were having lunch, uh, William was talking to me about his uh, trip. William directs our emergency services here in the county, and he was talking about his trip to Hawaii during the volcanoes. 
During that trip, William went out to serve as an information officer for what was happening there, and he showed me some pictures, and I want to share them with you. Here is uh, a picture of, of, uh, of lava erupting just out of the ground. Check out the next one, um, if you will. William said uh, this is their driving, and this is what they encounter flowing toward them. Let's look at the next picture. Uh, you see it up close, and then one more picture. William said what would happen is that away from the volcano itself, there would be these unexpected hot spots where they would simply erupt, sometimes in the middle of neighborhoods. This is why houses burned. Uh, this is why uh, the results of this volcano were so disastrous. You would know exactly where those hot spots were going to erupt. Well, such is the fact with anger. I would say to you, and I would speak now as both a counselor and a pastor, if you find yourself getting angry over things that shouldn't make you angry, it's because there's some large volcano feeding some little uh, eruptions. There's something larger feeding the smaller eruptions. If you are an angry spouse or an angry parent, if your children are steering clear of you, if your husband or your wife wonders what's going to come out of your mouth next, most likely somewhere a volcano is getting ready to erupt and they're simply seeing some little spouts here and there. Anger has to be dealt with. So let's look at it. From the inside to the out, let all bitterness, bitterness is inner resentment. Bitterness is beneath the soil. Bitterness cannot be seen with the naked eye. We're going from the inside to the out, just straight through this passage. Bitterness is in here. All right, so God has given us, God has given us in his grace something to measure the bitterness it's called your tongue. It's called your tongue. Scripture says out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth does what? It speaks. If coming out of your tongue, if coming from your mouth are angry words, it's because you have an angry heart. You cannot argue with that. It's like saying, I have a fever, but I'm not sick. The fever isn't the sickness. The fever is simply an indication of the sickness. And so it is with the tongue. Bitterness is on the inside. Second is wrath. Wrath is passion within the body. It is an internal, inside passion. So bitterness deep in fuels wrath. Then the next, anger is steady festering. That word is not a good word. Festering is never good. Nothing good ever festers. All right, so it is steady festering anger. 
So do you see what's happening here? There's bitterness over something that has been done to you. That bitterness then feeds wrath, which then fuels a steady, festering anger. And then it comes out. The old word clamor. What is clamor? It's a good old word. It's a lack of restraint that leads to loud shouting. All right, that's the old definition for the word clamor. What is clamor? It's a real loud argument. Clamor is when you yell. Clamor is when you lose your cool and yell. And when you do that, when you've lost it, when you're screaming and when you're yelling, that in and of itself is not the problem. The problem needs to trace all the way back to bitterness. And bitterness is described in Hebrews as a root. It is root, meaning it's under the ground. The picture is that it's under the ground. What do roots do? They grow all the time. They grow when no one can see them. And roots always produce what? Fruits. All right, so roots are this metaphor, this image, and it grows underneath. And what will come from it eventually is a plant. And the plant is bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor. And then when speaking to the person doesn't do what you want it to do, The next one, slander. Let's talk about them. If speaking to someone doesn't do what I feel, it doesn't meet this need, right? The volcano's erupting, but I sense a need for more eruption. Then let me talk about the person. I love the proverb that says, Set a guard, O Lord, over the door of my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Slander is this language that tears other people apart. It is deadly, it is devastating, and it has become the norm in church. It has become the norm in all aspects of television today. News is no longer news, it is slander And if you feed on that slander, you will eventually become slanderous. Sports reporting is no longer sports reporting. It is slander. It is debilitating. It is tearing down. It is second-guessing. It's everywhere today. And I'm just saying to you, if we are going to be different as the people of God, at some point we must say enough. And so it's crept over into the church world. It is so easy for one leader, Christian leader, to slander another leader today and just keep trucking as if it's no big deal. Tear this one down. Tear that one down. Undermine this one. Say things you don't know for sure about that one. It's all accepted in the blogosphere today. And it is ungodly. It is unbiblical. There is no place for it at all. Well, well, what if you don't deal with the slander? along with all malice, 
ill will with a desire to injure. This is where the person, unstopped in his or her anger, carries out an audacious plan to undo the other. This is where it gets really ugly. It's awful. Perhaps you have been on the receiving end of this. It is not pretty. It hurts. It is destructive in its nature. And the word is to put it away, and that means renounce. You can't cast a passing glance at it. You must say, absolutely not. That's what you do. It it must be such a renunciation of it that when words come into your mouth, if there's the slightest hint of a check, stop. Don't say what you're about to say. Stop. Just, just hush at that moment. Just, just at that moment, be quiet. So this is essential before forgiveness and loving can happen. Renounce all ungodly anger. Now, is there godly anger? Yes. It makes up a tiny little sliver of anger. Most anger is ungodly. There is godly anger. Uh, That would be righteous indignation, right? That's anger over someone being mistreated. Anger that rushes to the aid of another. Anger that causes you to act in a just way, uh, in a sense of injustice. Uh, But that's a tiny little sliver of the big array of ungodly anger. Step two, forgive like God forgives. Look at verse 31. Be kind to one another. That word kind is hard to define uh, because it's such a, a benign word. Well, what does it mean to be kind? We have all of our uh, different definitions of it. Uh, it's wrapped up in, in the word grace. Uh, we might say be gracious to one another. Be gracious to one another. It is the attitude of God toward all his creatures, but especially his children Israel. He was gracious and is toward them. Well, what is it? Here it is. I guess kindness could be defined by tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So our forgiveness is to model the forgiveness of God And how did God forgive us? In Christ. So so what does that look like? It looks like grace. That's what it looks like. It's grace. Uh, What does it mean? It means that I must never forget that had I been there that day, when Christ was being crucified, I would have held the hammer 
and I would have picked up a spike. It means that, that I, uh, without trying, am sinful. That's what it means. This thought and idea has been lost largely on the church today. I have the privilege of teaching at Montreat, and uh, I had my students to do something this year I'd never asked them to do. It was a, a writing assignment, rather simple from the writing point of view, but it was introspective in nature. I asked them uh, to really give a lay of the land of where they are spiritually. What is their view of the church? What is their view of uh, the Bible? What is their view of Jesus? Um, uh, where are they spiritually? Uh, those kinds of questions. As I sat down, not this weekend, but last weekend, to read 70 or so papers, as I sat down to read them, uh, the first few ones just caused the wind to go out of my sails. I sat there. They know they're writing to a pastor who is also their professor. They know this is for a grade, and their honesty is brutal. These are students applying and attending a Christian college. You don't have to be Christian to go to Montreat. Uh, many of them claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. But as I begin to read, their view of the church is horrific. It is horrific. It's not okay. It's awful. And there I sit, having given most of my life to the church, serving the church as I do and as I enjoy, and I'm reading these thinking, how have we gotten here? How have we gotten here to where here these students are? What's going to be the view of church outside of a Christian college? Uh, let's go beyond a Christian college to some of our public universities where the percentages of Christians are so much lower. Why is it? They're, they're just writing one paragraph on each question for me. Uh, why is it that they view the church at best as irrelevant? Why bother? at worst, as oppressive and abusive. That's the gamut. It's either irrelevant or it's oppressive or it is abusive. Why is it that their view is such of the church? As I read, I discovered several different things in their views. Some of them, well, they said we became teenagers or we were elementary kids and we quit attending because I started playing sports. And the church no longer mattered to me and my family, and I've just never gotten back. That's chronicled these days. It's written about in Christian circles the demise of church attendance at the expense of sports. It's a phenomenon now of many families choosing sports over church and their kids getting that message loud and clear. This is priority. This is priority. For some, it was that. For others, if I look at a swath, when my parents divorced, our family fell apart. And those would blend right in with a friend died 
Someone died. This happened. This tragedy. I got, here it is, angry at God. Angry at God. Interestingly enough, though, here's what's fascinating. Their view of Christ not hurt very badly. No, it's their view of us who represent him that's hurt so bad. Uh. If I'm to be his number one salesman, if, if it's my job, and it is, to represent Christ, and if it is yours, I read those thinking, I failed. I, I, I walked back into my class on a Monday morning, and I looked out at these kids whose papers I had read, and I thought, oh, God, I have a year to do better. I have a year not only to teach the Old Testament and, and next semester to teach the new, but I have a year to somehow represent you in a tangible way to students who sit here in, in these, the major decision time of their lives, 18 to 30, when they're running like crazy from the church, it, when they make the major decisions, career, husband, wife, all of these things, and, and they're falling like flies. They're leaving in abundance in it terrifies me it breaks my heart and and when I come to our second service in our second service at least 50 percent of them are under the age of 30 I look around the room and I'm just so encouraged I'm thrilled I see these young folks and go here they are God help us as a church to embrace them to love them to show you to them and one of the ways we do it is to forgive like he forgives to forgive like he forgives. They are not impressed with buildings, not that ours would ever do that anyway, but they are not impressed with buildings. They are not impressed with, uh, with uh, the things that might impress you as an older generation. They're not. No, they're looking for authenticity. And authenticity is, can you forgive one another? And if you cannot, the church ceases to do one of the things the church is called to do, and that is to forgive. Someone says this is part of the conformity pattern in which Christ's sacrifice on the cross is the lifestyle to which believers are to conform Here's a definition of forgiveness. God's forgiveness is a commitment. Did you see that? It's not a feeling. Oh, my goodness, it isn't. If you've ever had to seriously forgive somebody, it does not feel good. Amen? It doesn't. It doesn't feel good at first. A commitment by the one true God to pardon graciously those who repent and believe so that they are reconciled to him, although this commitment does not eliminate all consequences. God will forgive you of your sins. Oh my, he's done it again and again and again. But sometimes those consequences will linger, won't they? Oh, that hurts. So we've got to forgive like he does. How do we do that in Christ? I'm just saying to you, some of you are facing unforgivable circumstances unless Christ is in you, the hope of glory. You're facing circumstances that seem so hard to forgive. Number three, love like Christ loves. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. This is the only place in Scripture where we're told directly to imitate God. Isn't that interesting? 
onlys matter. They matter in Scripture a big deal. The only place in Scripture where we're told to imitate God is in the arena of forgiveness. What does the word imitate mean? It means to mimic. Well, well, what kind of picture do we get of this? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved kids. Do you know what loved kids do? They mimic their parents. They do. They do. If your kids mimic you, that's one of the greatest compliments you can have. It means they love you. It means they think how you're doing things is probably how they should do things, right? And so if your kids are doing it like you do it, hopefully that's a good thing. And as they mimic you, they're saying, I love you, Mom. I love you, Dad. Uh, that's, that's what we do. And, and that's what we do as, as, as God's kids. We mimic him, don't we? And when we mimic him, we say, I love you, Mom. Or, or I love you, Dad. He's not a mom. Check that on Facebook. All right, so William Arthur Ward. Here we go. We are most like beasts when we kill. We are most like men when we judge. We are most like God when we forgive. Wow. The second first is this is the first mention of the love of Christ in Ephesians. All right, so we have the first mention in all of uh, Scripture, the only mention, rather, of imitate God. But in the Ephesians, this is the first mention of the love of Christ. By living a life of love, the Ephesians will imitate God. That's the thing. Walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. All right. Smelling good is a good thing, isn't it? Amen? It is. Baths matter. They really do. They really do. All right, so, so, so if you've ever had kids, or boys especially, they may have gone through a stage where they didn't matter as much. Uh, and if that is the case, you know how it felt to walk in their bedroom. Like as I say it, odors come into your nose. Uh, you, it's hard to forget that smell. In the Old Testament, sacrifices, which must have been awful to the nose, okay, the burning of animal flesh is not pleasant. But it was to God. And they were considered fragrant offerings to him. There is nothing pleasant about Christ dying on the cross. But here, he is called a fragrant offering to God. I, I have a question for you. And this is base, although it's based on Scripture. Do you stink right now to God? You say, Jerry, what do you mean? Are you coming to him refusing to give yourself up as Christ did for the purpose of forgiving someone 
who has hurt you deeply. And in your refusal, every time you come to, into his presence, the lingering rottenness of unforgiveness is mixed with your prayers. Like an unbathed teenage boy. What he desires is that we forgive like he forgives God and that we love like Christ loves. To forgive like he forgives is to give up what matters most to us as we forgive others. And to love like Christ loves is to love someone who may not have done the most loving thing to us. I've witnessed this personally, and I've witnessed this as a pastor. There are words that come from the cross that echo in my mind when there is a need to forgive someone as God in Christ has forgiven me. What are they? Father, what are the next two words? Forgive them. Father, what is it, the next two words? Forgive them. Who? Roman soldiers driving spikes in, in my hands. Father, forgive them. Who? Who? Peter running off in the night. Uh, the other disciples who fled, Father, forgive them. Who? Chief priests, religious leaders. Father, forgive them. Who? My, my own brothers who don't believe I'm the Messiah. And they're nowhere to be found right now. Scripture says they came to Christ post-resurrection. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them. All right, so what does it, what does it look like? There are details of this that we'll get into as we get through the series, and in your life groups, you will have the opportunity to discuss things. I would say that it must begin uh, in a very practical way. Hopefully today's message has motivated you to forgive. Um, hopefully it has. And you see the why behind the forgive, so how? So here's my encouragement to you. I did this in the months leading up to this sermon series. Prepare, make a list of those you need to forgive. 
I, I made a list. There were six people on my list, none of whom had done anything to me, all of whom had done things to people I love. I have discovered in my own life that it's much harder to forgive people who hurt my kids than it is to forgive people who hurt me. I've just discovered that. That's hard. Everybody on my list, everybody on my list, that's why they're there. They've forgiven, they've hurt deeply. Someone, not all kids, but someone I love deeply. And so, this could be your husband's boss. This could be your wife's mother who hurts your wife repeatedly. This this could be someone who has hurt you in an ultimate way. They've abused you. And it's been something that has affected your life in tremendous ways. Now, if you say, I, I'm struggling, Jerry. Okay, you're not alone. Anybody who has some serious forgiving to do will struggle. So the second part of the exercise is this. On the left is your list of those you need to forgive. And I'm serious about this. On the right, as you struggle, begin to write down all the things for which God has forgiven you. Just make a list. You know your worst sins. I'm guessing you won't want this list to get out. And as an exercise in mimicking Christ, who was the willing victim who went to the cross, as an exercise, go back and forth between the two. And here's the prayer that I've learned to pray. Lord, help me to forgive. Fill in the blank. Lord, help me to forgive. And fill in the blank. Lord, help me to forgive. And fill in the blank. Will he do that? Yes. Yes. He will. He will. Years ago, I was a youth minister, and I know this may sound outrageous to you, but 
One Wednesday night, a black kid showed up in our youth group. We celebrated that. It may have been two days later when two women met me in the hallway and they had stern words that a black kid had come to youth. I honestly cannot say if I responded as respectfully as I should. And pursuant to my response, one of those women slapped me through the face. It was unbelievable as I stood there. Wow. It's about a month ago I saw her By the grace of God, I forgave her years and years and years ago. She came up to me and she said, I can't tell you how proud I am of you and the work that God is doing through you. So I must say, that immediately through my mind, I wanted to say, do you know my daughter dates a black dude? <laughs> All right, so that went through my mind just like that. Like, let me get a picture. <laughs> do you know this? You know? But in my heart, because of forgiveness granted years ago, grace flowed. Years later. Now, I'll say that to say, on the flip side, I've got somebody else on my list that is so hard. Who's hurt one of my kids? And Hannah says, Dad, I, I've forgiven him. And I say, good for you. <laughs> I, I'm just shooting straight. Like, how could I forgive that, right? And then just like so struggle here. And Hannah said, yeah, Dad, I, I haven't. Like, in all honesty, I said, Hannah, if I was driving down the road and I, like, I saw him go off a cliff, I think I'd accelerate. <laughs> like, this is so bad. I'm being real with you. This is where the rubber meets the road. But I'm convinced if we will be his church in this, he will be lifted up and he will draw all people to himself. Do the hard work of forgiveness. Let me pray for you. Lord, we are sending these people out today to do the hard work of forgiveness. It is not easy. 
Oh, God. Oh, God, I pray. I pray that you would enable us to forgive, empower us. Lord, sometimes it's these hefty offenses that people have done against us or someone we love, and sometimes, Lord, it's small things. Maybe it's like the dripping faucet thing that doesn't go away. It's the nagging thing. Sometimes it's the cumulative effect of prolonged sin. Oh, God, forgive. Forgive us for not forgiving. May conversations be had and right words be spoken. Jesus, we pray this in your strong name. And all God's people say, amen. God bless you as you go. Be safe.